0: Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com.
1: My name is Scott Lewis. I'm the editor in chief at Voice of San Diego and the host of Good Schools for All and the Voice of San Diego podcasts. If you're interested in sponsoring one of our podcasts and associating your company's name or message with the great shows we produce, please let us know. Contact Aaron Zlotnick at aaron at voiceofsandiego.org. That's E-R-I-N at voiceofsandiego.org.
2: Good evening. My name is Cindy Burroughs. I am a president of Lincoln High's PTO. I'm here to discuss a couple of things that happened. Welcome back to the new school year. And I hope that we can start this school year off with a bang, with the $130 million school that was built in the urban community of Southeast San Diego, which I believe was built to be the flagship school of the district. So my job and my obligation to my community is to return that school to the glory. At this point, I see that there appears to be a decisive, systematic, To humiliate and destroy Lincoln High School students in a community.
3: My mom says my neighborhood school isn't good enough. How am I supposed to know my kids are getting the best education possible?
2: Welcome to Good Schools for All,
1: a podcast from the investigative news organization Voice of San Diego and the Education Synergy Alliance.
4: We cut through the jargon and polarized debate to get you the news and ideas that matter. Good schools are at the heart of our democracy and economy, and we're about good schools for all kids.
1: We hope you'll learn and maybe teach us something.
4: It should be an excellent school in every community.
1: Enjoy the show. My name is Scott Lewis.
4: And I'm Laura Cohn. Hi, Laura. Hi, Scott.
1: So we, as you heard, we have a special episode today about Lincoln High School and about um, concern about Lincoln High School. That uh, woman you just heard, Cindy Barros, was speaking in September at the San Diego Unified School Board meeting. And that was just after the school year began. And concern about Lincoln High School has not abated in the months since. You see, Lincoln was rebuilt and reopened in 2007 after a long decline. And when it opened... 2300 students lined up it was uh, it, it was packed everybody was excited about the rebuild. it was it's a beautiful facility have you been there
4: I have not actually walked it but I've uh, driven by many times.
1: It's an um, extraordinary facility a lot of great um, athletic and uh, multimedia and all the equipment and, and buildings that you could want I think it feels like a more like a community college campus almost in some ways than a, than a high school you know it's very big and very just a lot there. So yes, it was this huge rebuild, um, but those 2,300 students that enrolled when it first rebuilt, now that's down to 1,500. And you found some numbers too about 20, uh, the class of 2016, right?
4: Yes, the class of 2016 started four years ago with 587 freshmen, but only 249 seniors collected diplomas at Lincoln High School last June. Um, and it's one of the schools in the region that parents and students... Um, avoid. They, they pick away from it or that they flee while they're um, enrolled there. They may, may start as freshmen, but they leave to go to other schools, other charters, other districts. Um, and test scores um, are, are definitely not impressive. They're in the lowest decile among high schools in the state.
1: Yeah. So many classrooms sit empty. And look, let's go, stop here for a second, say something important. This is not a special episode designed to dump on Lincoln. No, We quite, op- quite the opposite believe um, that this community is strong enough and we optimistically believe that this community is strong enough and, and can do a lot to make this truly a very awesome and proud place to, uh, to educate kids and to send your kids. We need that, that this community needs that. We cannot let Lincoln uh, uh, descend into more chaos and failure as it has. And this isn't this isn't to point out how bad it is, but actually to um, to go with Lincoln, right?
4: Yeah, I mean, we would love through this conversation and many others to inspire the San Diego community to love on Lincoln, to have Lincoln be a place that we all are committed to supporting to have it thrive in the future.
1: Right. So we're going to talk today about, um, about Lincoln High School, but also the general concern and challenge of rebuilding schools or turning them around. Uh, what is school turnaround? What are the discussions nationwide about school turnaround? What do we know about what works and what do we know about what doesn't? And so we've uh, talked to a couple people about that. And so we're going to talk about Lincoln High School um, but we're also going to uh, talk to them and and get the best of the best in in thinking about this. Now, a district administrator, uh, Cheryl Hiblin, recently went to uh, Lincoln High School and said that one of the reasons it was struggling so much was because students coming to the high school were reading at only a second grade level, and she told this to a uh, group of parents and and interested people there. That infuriated Philip Liberta, member of the community members, a, a group called the Lincoln cluster. And, uh, Phillip was at that same school board meeting. We talked, uh, we just highlighted earlier and, and he had this to say.
2: One administrator, senior administrator, she made some comments about the reading level of Lincoln high school. That is unacceptable for a senior administrator to repeat that Lincoln high school students are reading at a second grade level. That is unacceptable. And if that was the case, then she should have brought the attention that to the attention of the board, to the community, to our parents, and to the students. So, you can tell
1: things are really tense right now. Again, this is an effort to understand where we're at with Lincoln High School, but also w- what kind of thinking can we help bring to this discussion as people try to figure out how to turn Lincoln High School around. It's it 's been tried. <laughs> Lincoln High School has itself been subject of several turnaround efforts It's uh, had a revolving door of principals. It right now does not have a permanent principal
4: so look uh, San Diego is not alone in its struggle to um, successfully turn around a school that is chronically low performing as we say in the business. The Obama administration invested billions of dollars some uh, a lot of it through the um, the post recession ARA funds in supporting schools and districts to try to turn themselves around with pretty mixed success, but it can be done.
1: So, we actually reached out to two experts with vastly different perspectives on this. And the first one might sound familiar to you, it might ring a bell. He happens to be the former superintendent of San Diego schools who was in charge when Lincoln reopened after that $130 million rebuild.
3: Carl Cohn, executive director. Of the California Collaborative for Educational Excellence.
4: So, that collaborative is the state's new agency in charge of helping schools and districts to improve the ones that are struggling. And one of the things that we talked to Carl about is. How, When you have a school that's struggling, how do you make sure that you have the absolute best teachers and and principals in that school? And here was his report about his effort in San Diego when he was superintendent.
3: When I arrived in San Diego, um, I called together all of the national board certified teachers in the district. Uh, invited them to one of those hotel circle hotels, fed them, gave them something to drink, and I asked them, what would it take for you to leave the safe confines of your current assignment and come to a school where the district needs your services and expertise? Now, turns out no surprise, the vast majority of national board certified teachers were working in la jolla scripps ranch um those places north of interstate eight right and and so the the question was the district needs as a system the district needs you to perhaps leave that place that you're happy at, come to a place where your services are really needed because we want to fix the whole system. And the response was fascinating. <laughs> One of the things they said to me, Mr. New Superintendent, are you aware that the vast majority Of tyrannical school principals are at the places that you want us to go to. What a lot of people think about this discussion, they think it would start with money and that, you know, how much are you going to pay us to leave La Jolla and go south of Interstate 8? Money never came up. It was all about what kind of climate do you have for teachers at the places that you want us to go to. And let me tell you something, Mr. New Superintendent. Um, I engage my students in rich enrichment activities. And so when you've got a principal sitting there with a clipboard uh, and telling me that I only get to teach this prescriptive stuff that's designed only to increase scores on bubble-in tests as a professional, that's not what I want to do.
4: You know, what that actually made me think about, Scott, is the article that you all did recently on Gompers. And the description in that article um, showed teachers who really are deeply committed to the work they're doing with kids at let's, Gompers. Let's and,
1: explain for a sec. So Gompers yeah. Preparatory Academy, near same near neighborhood as uh, well, nearby um, uh, Lincoln High School. And uh, it used to be a uh, regular district school was um, uh, changed into a charter school. And Vince Riverall, Riverall who runs that, uh, was uh, it, it's um, it's pulling a lot of the kids that uh, that um, have chosen not to go to Lincoln High School and other places.
4: That's right. And they're getting amazing results. And one of the ways that you get amazing results with kids is to have incredible teachers and and school principals. And Gompers is one place that shows us you can create a very positive school climate that is a, that honors teaching and that is a place that will draw teachers from across the region. Um, so it's not an impossible task, what what Carl Cohn described. He described the initial reaction of teachers, but it can be overcome. Well, and
1: it's something as a manager, I've realized too, you know, there's obviously money is important. There's no question that money is important. And it's in you know, employees think about it a lot, but I find, and I think a lot of managers find, that purpose is more important. Mm-hmm. That that freedom and purpose, and you know, um, the kinds of inspirational daily sort of validation that that can help you continue to work, and that's what he's talking about here, right? He's like, he's like, look, if if we're not going to be able to attract teachers that we need at these schools uh, to help these uh, th- this this you know improvement occur. Unless they have that sense of A freedom or B uh, you know, validation and, and sort of purpose. That's right. And so I guess what we're trying to understand is is you know how do you do that and Carl is coming at it and Dr. Cohn is coming at it from this perspective of you've got to address the entire system and make it more attractive for different uh, talent and, and whatever we talked to another person this is
0: Ashley Jockum I'm a research analyst at the Center on Reinventing Public Education at the University of Washington Bothell
1: and Ashley Jockum had a different perspective
4: yeah she had taken uh, the center for reinventing public education is an entity I worked at early in my career really? at the University of Washington yeah didn't get to work with Ashley but worked Where is closely Bothell? well Bothell is just uh, north of uh, Seattle and there are political reasons why the center is supposedly located there instead of at the main campus in Seattle. But in any event, um, Ashley and her team took a look at school turnaround efforts by states nationwide and just a few weeks ago put out a report about it.
1: Right. So she had seen basically three different approaches to struggling schools.
4: When you
0: talk about a school that's um, in turnaround status and struggling for a variety of reasons, which have to do with staffing, instruction, uh, culture, uh, there's not just one intervention that you can implement uh, to get a handle on all of those issues at the same time. So I think, you know, when we talk about this from a policy perspective, and I think that, you know, your example of Lincoln High School um, suggests a lot of the turmoil that is, uh, is uh, unfolding in many districts around this, they don't quite know how to get a handle over the problem. So what we've seen in recent years is uh, a few different common approaches that states and or districts might use. Um, So the first is by providing a lot of professional development and assistance to existing staff. Right. So you've seen this in California through the the state's intervention teams that come in um, and, you know, try to provide uh, support to existing teachers and the principal to improve their practice. Um, So that's approach number one. Um, And, you know, a lot of people have been frustrated with the results from that approach, which is what led to. Uh, the development of new strategies most recently articulated in the School Improvement Grant Program. And that program emphasized replacing staff. So it said you have to replace the principal, and depending on the model, you might also replace um, all or some of your teachers. Um, And the idea here is is that the people really matter, right? And if you can get new people in the building, maybe you can get a handle on, on all of these other issues. Um, A third model that has proven less popular but probably uh, most contentious is the use of charter schools, um, which are, you know, a version of an external school operator, which districts or a state might contract with to manage the turnaround process.
1: So it seems like that first approach is what Carl Cohn is talking about, you know, coming in and teaching principals to be more open to attract uh, uh, better teachers, or to also just help them be more fulfilled. Right. Mm-hmm. The second one, the one about replacing staff, is kind of the one that the districts have been doing at Lincoln High School, at least for the principal. Just
4: the principalship, as far as we know. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so,
4: in fact, uh, Esther Amogden Esther Amogdin, um really worked hard on replacing a lot of staff members, and that. Resulted in so much intense turmoil at the school that she was ultimately removed.
1: Yeah, she was the second principal after Lincoln High was rebuilt, and uh, and she, yeah, the the tension around removing her was a was a dramatic story for for quite some time there, and she ended up moving to Houston, becoming uh, um, one of the leaders in the district at Houston. So, yes, that, that's, yeah, exactly another, another um, issue of the revolving door. Now, Ashley Jockham emphasized that uh, uh, changing out or principle or just the leadership is really not enough to make um, something change. And then I asked you, so is there, is there some place that's really stuck out uh, that, uh, that you've seen some pretty impressive things happen as far as turnaround efforts?
0: One example that comes to mind is in Massachusetts, they sponsored this, they worked with a local district to sponsor, sponsor an empowerment zone, um, which was a special zone in the district to deal with a number of struggling middle schools. And one of those schools, they brought in an external operator to manage it, but it still remains a district school. And that operator did some pretty deep work with the community. So they actually brought current parents um, and had them visit other sites um, that they were operating in to see what their school looked like. They solicited feedback from families about what they want to see in a new and improved um, school. And all of those things, I think, can help build the confidence um, that families have in the school, right? It's not enough just to change the leadership, especially if you've had a lot of leadership turnover in, historically, um, because it just looks like, you know, more moving of the pieces without any real change. So I think um, it, it highlights, again, another piece of the complexity of this work, which it's, it's not enough just to improve instruction or um, install a new uh, curriculum. You really have to get Families and staff, their buy-in into the process.
4: Scott, this is a really key point, and it's—I would say—it's one of the biggest lessons that um, education reformers, if you will, have learned nationally over the last few years. You just trying to improve schools from the top down is really unlikely to succeed. We need our families and our community to be participating in, to be driving, to be um, a big part of the change. And so we're getting better and better over time at doing this. One of the great um, examples of, of doing it wrong, if you will, is Newark, New Jersey, where um, where there was an investment of $100 million by Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg, and um, a lot of top-down approach to it and the community really pushed back hard against the changes that were done from the top down that way and so all, all of us now embrace this idea and Ashley's giving giving us an example where it was that lesson was successfully incorporated of the community has to be right there with you at the table
1: you know that Cindy Barros the leader of the PTO that spoke at the beginning of the show uh, at that uh, meeting she had she said something later and I didn't pull it but it was fascinating where she said, Look, I will help you bring this home. I will help you bring this home, but you have to, we, you have to take us along this process, which I think Ashley Jockham just described really well. Take them through this step by step, get their feedback. Show them things that are working, see what they would like, because if they're invested in this, you're going to see the other things you do, the new leadership, the new curriculums, all those things take off. And I think what we learned, too, after studying McKinley Elementary, which went through its own turnaround effort in, in San Diego, was that, yes, there was a lot of money that came in after parents got more involved, but the parents got more involved. And that was the key that finally was uh, allowing them to get some traction to readjust the perception in the community and then actually provide curriculum and educational improvements that came along with all that involvement and change.
4: You know, there's another really intriguing aspect of Ashley's um, example in Massachusetts, which is the external operator, because, and I don't think it's uh, necessarily the externalness of the operator that maybe made the difference, but maybe it's the bandwidth. So, um, The school district administrators, they're managing a very large school district in San Diego and carving out the time to really – authentically engage with the community and um, involve them in planning the changes for Lincoln, it takes a lot of time and bandwidth. So um, I'd be interested in learning more about how having that external operator school, still a district school in, in Massachusetts helped them to um, do all that good work with the community. Well, yeah. And
1: put the cluster, put the PTO, put everybody, get them on buses and let's go to, you know, the best schools in the community to the high tech highs, or the Scripps Ranch highs, or whatever, and see what they what do they see at those places that they want to try to bring back. Maybe there's parts of it, maybe not. And then you know, it, we could all go through a sort of pipeline process. Lean in on Lincoln, like you, how did you put it? Love like, on Lincoln. Love on Lincoln, and like pull all these things together and figure out where uh, what direction. Now they have there has been surveys of parents in the Lincoln cluster area, and it's a little. Not good. So today about 20% of students in San Diego Unified attend charter schools. Uh, and that's forced the district to confront uh, the need to better market and improve and deliver what they might even call customer service. So the district's on a mission to create a, a quality school in every neighborhood. And, uh, you know, one big way to measure that is is the number of of neighborhood kids that it serves. But neighborhood schools take on more om- ominous meaning for students who aren't lucky enough to live near those high-performing schools. And so our Mario Karen, uh did, you know, pulled some of these things together. And nowhere is that concern about not living next to a high-performing school more acute than in Southeastern San Diego where Lincoln is. Uh, a study from the University of San Diego Center for Education Policy and Law last year showed that 70 percent of families in the area opt out of their neighborhood schools by the time they get into high school. That's a higher rate of departure than any other part of town. And last year, area principals surveyed parents to find out why why they were leaving. And here's what they said: It was interesting. Parents wanted a safe schools. They wanted strong academics, and they wanted to know teachers cared. And they had serious doubts about whether Lincoln and nearby middle schools could provide those things. And so uh, that, I think, is is also contributing. The the safety thing is really interesting. And what Mario found as he studied some of the, the charter schools in the area that were pulling or attracting kids and parents away, what I think he found that was interesting was just how much security, discipline mattered mm-hmm. in that discussion. It wasn't so much curriculum and freedom and and innovation. It was just order.
4: Yeah, that's that's huge. Uh, it's a prerequisite to learning. So if you're in a chaotic environment, and I'm not saying Lincoln is, um, uh, you really can't focus on the schoolwork that's in front of you. And so that's why you often find um, really effective schools. not They don't have to have a rigid militaristic discipline, but they do have to make sure that the school... Is a, is a place where students both feel and absolutely are safe.
1: Right. So one of the uh, schools nearby is O'Farrell Charter School. O'Farrell Superintendent John Dean told Mario that in recent years, a number of community groups approached him asking if, uh, if he'd be willing to take a lead in transforming Lincoln High. Uh, Gompers that we just talked to, uh, Vince Riverall has gotten similar questions, but they say no. <laughs> like if somebody, if the district wants to talk to us, we, we're happy to talk but it has to be somebody else pushing that. Now, after one of the visits uh, from Superintendent Cindy Martin, uh, a person who was there uh, said that uh, Martin exclaimed at Gompers that she can't unsee what she just saw. In other words, that she was so impressed with some of those things that maybe there's some lessons that they could uh, scale over. Now, this is going to be a tight, interesting decision, but um, I think that there's going to be pressure uh, to think about whether there should be you know, more wholesale or overhauls or, or, or of the operation of, of Lincoln High. Now Carl Cohen uh, who we spoke to is not necessarily comfortable with that approach and that discussion.
3: The three largest districts in California are Los Angeles, San Diego, and Long Beach. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen a story yet on why Long Beach has an absolutely minuscule charter school movement and that Los Angeles and San Diego have huge charter school movements. If I were an enterprising journalist I'd want some answers as to what the difference is. I believe and and I think there are all kinds of reasons why um this issue around choice and charters is coming to a head. You're probably aware that nationally the NAACP has called for a moratorium on charters. All kinds of issues are pointing to just a huge battle around this issue. And You know, part of the argument is you can't wait. There's a generation of poor kids of color who are going to get lost if you don't give their parents choice. NAACP is arguing that dual school systems are fundamentally unconstitutional. Let me give you a concrete example that speaks to your San Diego audience. When I came down to San Diego, the fall of 2005, the spring, immediately before that, La Jolla had made some rumblings about, La Jolla High School had made some rumblings about going charter. The district ran out there and said, If you go charter, that would be a disaster of unspeakable proportions. So whatever you want, whatever we need to do to fix La Jolla, we'll do it. And at the time, I think it was La Jolla didn't want to be um, bound by the superintendent's uh, blueprint for student success. And, And so it was like you know you can't possibly leave that would be awful but then when I got there it was clear that part of the message to parents south of Interstate 8 was you know what in order for you to get what you need for your child you may have to go charter now if you're a classic civil rights lawyer who really understands the notion of a dual school system, you're likely to be uncomfortable with that. And and so part of this debate is in fact what duty do school systems have to fix low-performing schools wherever we find them? And to what extent should school districts move mountains in order to make sure that happens, as opposed to, well, you know what, Um, if you want to come in, and, and, you know, the same thing with regard to Los Angeles and South Central Los Angeles, you know, all carved up by charters and charter management organizations. What duty do local officials have to absolutely roll up their sleeves and fix so-called low-performing or failing
4: schools? Yeah, so I don't think the NAACP is saying, I'm sure they're not saying, uh, we think that all kids should be required to attend their local school, no matter how lousy it is. So the key part of what Carl Carl Cohen just said is the move mountains part. Right. You know, I think there's a little bit of, he was using a little bit of code with that move mountains statement uh, because I, I think he's trying to imply that we need to look, that districts have a responsibility to take some really radical, big, bold um, approaches to turning around low performing schools if they don't want to have a dual school system. I
1: think and it's become clear that's what the, what the race is in San Diego, too, that the district seems to realize that this, that pressure is there, that if, if something major doesn't happen to, to uh, you know, change the trajectory of Lincoln High School, then this, this other solution is there is looming. And, and yeah, I think that's exactly what he's saying. He's saying, don't try to just oppose that movement. You better move mountains to, to address this community's need at this school now. And, and so he's, he's not just saying there's a, I have a problem, which he clearly is. He's not just saying, I have a problem with this charter school movement. He's saying you can't just have a problem with it. You have to fix, and, and, and not just the way it's often implied, like just fix the marketing of these right. neighborhood schools. It's not just the perception. No. Perception is important, but where there's smoke, there's fire. There has to be... Something that people can glom onto to generate more pride and confidence in these neighborhood schools, if we're to make them as attractive as you need to, to to fix these enrollment gaps. And that enrollment gap is unsustainable. You cannot have a school that's, you know, a, a third empty.
4: No. It, it, it's a, it, in fact, it's a negative reinforcing loop because the fewer students it has, the fewer resources it gets, the fewer resources it gets, the fewer amenities and supports it can offer to kids. And so, yeah, it's absolutely, uh, it's not just not sustainable. It, it has a downward trajectory.
1: Yeah. And now Ashley Jochem had a, a little bit different perspective on this. I think what what she wanted to highlight is that this discussion of, of both school choice with charters and another Idea, which is just close bad schools, is something that that changes the perspective and the discussion in an important way, and I think um, let's be clear: nobody's going to close Lincoln High School. It's a beautiful facility and campus that um, that we need to make use of. But I think there is a lot of talk about: well, what if you know there is a school that's performing badly and it keeps going through these you know turnaround efforts. And at what point do you just say, let's stop that and let kids go to good schools? I think that uh, it's worth thinking about what that does to the discussion, but Ashley Joachim had an interesting perspective on that and also some concerns to keep in mind when you go down that path.
0: All of those are strategies that try to move students in order to uh, get improved outcomes for them. And the thing that I think is really intriguing about them is they all shift our focus um, from schools to students, um, which could be a good thing or a bad thing depending on your perspective. Um, so I think all of these uh, questions, they're very politically contentious, but they also have the prospect of, of getting individual kids to have um, improved student achievement or you know the other outcomes that we're interested in. The one thing i did want to note on this point though is that when we talk about both closure and expanding school choice neither of those on their own are actually strategies for um, improving the number of good schools available and what we've seen in a number of cities is when you expand choice or you you close a bunch of schools if kids don't actually have uh, 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 you know enough schools that they can apply to after their school is closed or just via the normal enrollment process, it, you have a scarcity problem on your hands. And the only way to get out of that scarcity problem is either to sponsor new high-quality schools or um, to turn around existing ones. So it's a, in some ways, it's a circular problem when you engage in those strategies because they ultimately rely on having uh, good schools that kids can enroll in.
1: I, I'm trying to understand what you're saying. So you're saying that if you, it might make sense to close a school rather than keep trying to reinvent it or whatever. But what you're saying is that doesn't eliminate the problem that you still need to have a good school somewhere.
0: Exactly. And what we've seen on closure is that when kids, when a school is closed and kids go to a school that is, of equal performance or worse, um, the closure has pretty profound negative impacts on that student's academic achievement. When a school is closed and those kids enroll in a higher performing school, uh, their achievement actually increases.
1: So that's something to keep in mind. You never get out of the responsibility to provide a good school.
4: No, ultimately you need good schools for all, if you will. Our focus as a community needs to be on... um, turning around low performing schools adding more high quality schools we just as she said we need to increase that supply of amazing schools for all kids but it also um she points out it's also particular it's, it has geography it has geography built into it that um you have to make sure that there are good schools in all places for all kids
1: yeah yeah speaking of that sort of perception problem the district did address Lincoln High School a couple of years ago with an idea that uh, it would actually start doing a middle college and that would be a portfolio of courses that the high school students could take for college credit and that's different than AP because you know in order to get a college credit as an AP uh, you know class you you have to pass the APs test and so this was different this is actual college courses during school and it was uh, it was it, seeming to attract a lot of people. But then again, here's Cindy Barrows, the leader of the parent-teachers organization
2: again. The middle college program was thriving in Lincoln, giving the children opportunity to take something that they've never been offered before because people made them feel as though they weren't worthy. That was cut in half with no explanation other than you didn't have enough. Kids that were thriving at Lincoln were placed into a Math 96 class that they no longer needed. They pass precalculus and they're in math 96. This
4: middle college idea was born when I was at the Gates Foundation in between 2002 and 2004, and it's had a lot of success um, in schools nationwide because it gives students access to high-quality coursework that they get both college credit and high school credit for it. Uh, it, it can raise the expectations and standards and also relevance. It, get, it, it brings um, sort of real-world college uh, coursework and exposure onto the high school campus, but somehow the district wasn't able to lean into it or they leaned in and then they leaned back from it. At Lincoln. Well, they, they gutted
1: it this year. Now they promise that it's going to be strong in the future, but it was a very awkward start to the year. Kids showed up to classes that just weren't actually happening. So it's, it's again, this is, uh, it's, I, I'm genuinely scared about the future of Lincoln High School, and I and I'm not here to bag on Lincoln High School. I want it to succeed, and what we're hoping for is that as this discussion synthesizes and becomes more clear, that the c- entire city will rally a- and love on Lincoln because um, uh, this isn't this this is where it matters. Now, the um, the school doesn't though have a principal, a, pr- a permanent principal. And yet, you know, there's still some optimism. Here's uh, Cindy Martin at that same school board meeting.
4: There's one school in particular where I think we can really expect great things to happen this year, and that's Lincoln High School. I like to think that Lincoln doesn't have a permanent principal because Cindy Martin hasn't found the best possible person to put there, and maybe she's being patient to make sure that the next principal appointment she makes there is one that's going to last for the long haul. I really believe that Cindy Martin and Cheryl Hiblin, her high school director, that they can make a coherent plan to, uh, to lift up Lincoln, but they're not going to be able to do it on their own. They need, they're going to need really strong partnerships and um, a lot of support for, and, and cheering on from the community. We're just going to have to love on Lincoln and lean into this with them.
1: If you have any feedback for us, let me know at uh, scott at voiceofsandiego.org. We have a bunch of follow-up pieces coming at Voice of San Diego about this. I would also like to thank Rachel Evans, our fellow and intern who um, provided and helped get a lot of this uh, organized. Mario Coran has been doing some great investigative work on the district and on uh, this particular area. And, uh, of course, our uh, audio Guy over here does a, a lot of great work, and we, he's not recognized enough. Adam Greenfield, thank you for your help. And so let's transition to our weekly feature, a regular feature of uh, What's Working.
4: So What's Working this week, I am going to lift up my local elementary school because it's an example of a really successful school turnaround, Ocean Knoll Elementary School up in Encinitas. Um, It's about half Latino, half white kids. It's about half um, economically disadvantaged kids and um, half not economically disadvantaged kids. And it was really struggling about a decade ago. Uh, But here's a place where there was an appointment of a really Talented principal and Helica Lopez. She came there and stayed for, I think, at least six years. And one of the things she did that was really key is that she introduced the international baccalaureate curriculum with some support from the Leash Tag Foundation, which is a really high quality um, uh, curriculum that comes out of Switzerland, actually, and we have it in a few places here in San Diego County. And she used the International Baccalaureate to both build up the skills of teachers, but also to attract local families. It's a story sort of similar to your McKinley story. Um, And what you see now at Ocean Knoll is some really amazing outcomes where um, kids at Ocean Knoll, actually the achievement gap shrinks while they're there, which sounds like it should be what happens at every school, but it isn't. And so Ocean is just really thriving now. All
1: right. Our number of the week.
4: So thinking about the need for support and turnaround, I looked at some data that the California Charter Schools Association recently really released um, looking at the recent test scores but using a new analytical method, and they separated the schools into deciles and quartiles. San Diego County has 77 schools, that's our number of the week, 77, that are in the lowest quartile of schools based on this test score analysis um, statewide, and so... A bunch of those are ones that, um, along with Lincoln, we as a community want to focus on helping their school district, helping their faculty to help to lift up.
1: That's 77 elementary, middle, and high schools? Yes, okay. charter
4: and regular. Got it.
1: Well, thanks again. Thank you for this. Uh, for going with us through that sort of uh, special edition of Good Schools for All. And again, let us know if you have any feedback. Thank you, Laura.
4: Thank you, Scott.